podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Wednesday, the 26th of October, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield are a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Go to LibertyShield.com right now and use the code EPL25. That's EPL25 to get 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out both the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. You can use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off. Lastly, do check out both the Tad Predictable podcast hosted by Tadiwa on this feed before every Premier League match week. And the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, which you can find on its own feed. Just search EPL Roundtable on your podcast provider. Right, folks. How are we all today? So, random thought. Um, More random thing that I discovered in the last couple of days. Sabutio is massive again. When I was a kid, I had a Sabutio set. But, like, I'm talking about kind of late 80s, early 90s. And I sort of thought it had died off. And maybe it did. But it appears like it's made this enormous comeback in recent years. And I stumbled into Sabutio Twitter the other day. And have been spending substantial amounts of time scrolling through people's timelines. Looking at their Sabutio sets and collections. And... It's absolutely incredible, and I may well have found my next addiction. So, if these podcasts cease, you'll know why. And if they somehow become the Sabutio podcast, you'll also know why. Anyway, let's move on. Champions League last night, we had our eight games. Chelsea 2, Red Bull Salzburg 1 in Salzburg. Mateo Kovacic put Chelsea 1 up. Junior Adamo Adamu equalized on 49 minutes, but Kai Havertz gave Chelsea a deserved win on 64. Kai Havertz is a lovely player. He really is a lovely player. And Chelsea have never figured out how to get the best out of him. I've said for ages, it's as a false nine with two goal-scoring players either side of him or just behind him that have pace. I don't really like the the Havertz nine mount as one of the wide forwards or just often pairing. Now, if it was a 4-2-3-1 with Havertz as the nine and Mount as a 10, plus two goal-scoring wide players, that I could very much get on board with. That, I think, would be a whole lot of fun. 
But Kai's ability to hold the ball up, bring others into the game, pick the right pass, lovely one-touch game. He is an absolutely tremendous player. I know he hasn't lived up to the price that Chelsea paid, but I really don't think it's his fault. First and foremost, he was managed by a PE teacher. And then he got a really good manager in Thomas Tuchel, but a manager that for some reason completely abandoned his normal fundamental beliefs in how the game should be played to play horrendous defensive football that nobody wanted to watch and didn't suit any of his attacking players was merely, it would seem, a means to serve Thiago Silva. Bizarre. With that win, Chelsea are top of Group E, 10 points from their five games, and they are through to the knockout stages. In the other game in that group, AC Milan beat Dinamo Zagreb 4-0, Gabia, Leao, Giroud, and an own goal giving Milan a very, very comfortable and dominant win away from home. So Milan are second. Milan cannot top the group because Chelsea have the superior head-to-head record. So Chelsea will go through as group winners. Milan still have work to do. They need to get a result in their last game, which is at home to Salzburg. But a draw will be enough to see them through. Um, Salzburg have to hope that Chelsea don't lose to Dinamo if they fail to beat Salzburg, sorry, if they fail to beat Milan, if they get a draw or a defeat against Milan, they will stay on six points and they just need to hope that Dinamo don't get three points and jump them. Uh, but as things stand, it looks like Chelsea and Milan will go through and Salzburg will drop into the Europa League. In Group F, shock of the night, RB Leipzig 3, Real Madrid 2. Josko Gvardiol and Christopher Nkunku gave Leipzig the perfect start. They were two up after 18 minutes. Vinicius Jr. scored just before half time to make it 2-1 and give Leipzig a bit of a scare. Timo Werner wrapped it up on 81 and even a last-minute penalty from Rodrigo wasn't going to be enough. It was, to be fair, a heavily rotated Real Madrid team with Lucas Vasquez starting, with Nacho starting, Rudiger played left back, um, Camavinga started, Asensio started, and Rodrigo started as the nine. So, obviously, with Real having already secured their place, they weren't all that concerned about winning that game. Uh, they will want to win their last game, though, because they'll want to top the group. Now, it's it's at home to Celtic, so I don't have much hope for Celtic in that one. But Real top, Leipzig second on nine points. And those will be the two teams that progress. Shakhtar will go into the Europa League. Sh- Although if Shakhtar beat Leipzig, they'd have the same points. Shakhtar can still go through. They'd need to beat Leipzig. Did they not beat Leipzig already? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think they already did beat Leipzig, didn't they? I'm talking to myself here, so you'll have to excuse me. Um, they did. They beat them 4-1. They beat them 4-1. Mudrik absolutely tore them apart. So a Shakhtar win will actually see them go through and Leipzig drop into the Europa League. 
So that group still to be decided. And that's a home game for Shakhtar, even though it won't be played at home, it'll probably be played in Poland. You could easily see Shakhtar find their way through. Uh, Shakhtar and Celtic drew 1-1 last night. Uh, Gia Kamaukas scored for Celtic after 34 minutes and Mudrik scored after 58 minutes to equalise. That game also featured probably the worst miss I've ever seen. Um, Mudrik flew down the wing, beat everybody, played it across, and Sikhan is standing eight yards out, seven yards out. No goalkeeper, nobody in front of him, just needs to control the ball and tap it into the empty net. And instead, he seems to get caught between controlling and then finishing and finishing first time and does neither. The ball sort of bounces off him and bobbles and curls just past the post. Um, A horrifying moment for him, but great for Celtic. Uh, It does mean Celtic get two points, which it's a bit of respectability. It's a little bit of respectability. They'll play Real next week and they'll get thumped. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, In Group G, Borussia Dortmund nil, Man City nil. I did tell you, Dortmund play City really tough. Now, City missed a penalty in this game, Riyad Mahrez, who, as I've said before, contractually is only allowed to score the third penalty when City are already two goals up. So if it's the third goal from the penalty spot when City are two goals up, that's the only time he's allowed to score. Or from open plays, he's allowed to score the fourth goal in a game. Um, I have to say, I thought I thought Dortmund were the better team in this game. I thought City looked really poor. Now, no De Bruyne. That's a massive factor. Um, bit of a pick-and-mix defence. you got John Stones rambling around right back. Uh, Rodri didn't look well. Didn't look great. Hasn't looked great for a couple of weeks, to be fair. Um, Haaland had to go off with a, a virus or something. So that's not ideal. Um, hopefully it's not COVID or anything. He's not going to be out for too long. In the other game in that group, it was Sevilla 3, Copenhagen 0. Um, Yusuf N. Naziri, Isco and Gonzalo Montiel with the goals there. And that's a good win for Sevilla. It's too little too late in all likelihood. But you just never know. You just never know. Um, City are top, City are through. Dortmund are second, almost certainly going through. Sevilla third, Europa League for them, which means they'll probably do very well in it. Um, Dortmund of Copenhagen away in the last game, so that's why you'd expect Dortmund to go through. They only need a point. And um, Copenhagen are our bottom of the group with two points and unlikely to do anything other than finish bottom. I don't think they can do anything other than finish bottom now because of the head-to-head. So, yeah, out they go. Um, Sevilla into the Europa League and Dortmund City moving on. In Group H, we had the hammering of the night. PSG 7, Maccabee Haifa 2. Two from Messi, two from Mbappe, Neymar, an own goal by Sean Goldberg. And Carlos Soler wrapping it up. 
Uh, Sec with two goals for Maccabee Haifa. Uh, if I was Sean Goldberg, I would just tell people when you retire in 30 years, I just tell people I played for PSG once scored in the Champions League. Scored for them in the Champions League. That's how good I was. Um, yeah, PSG look rampant at the minute, to be fair. That front three, when it clicks, is, is scary. Much bigger tests to come. And teams with really good midfields will cause them some trouble. And that defence can absolutely be got at. But that front three is just otherworldly. Uh, in the other game in that group, this was the game of the night. Benfica 4, Juventus 3. Antonio Silva, brilliant young centre-back, scored the first. Moise, uh, Moise Keane equalised four minutes later. Then a Jean Mario penalty put Benfica 2-1 up. Rafa Silva made a 3-1 on 35 minutes and then 4-1 on 50 minutes. Juventus did score two late in the game. They got one from Arcadius Milliken on 77, one from Weston McKenney on 79. And there was about a five-minute spell where I thought they're actually going to do this. They're going to get the comeback and get a point. But thankfully enough, Benfica held on. Great result for them. So it is PSG and Benfica going through. And then we have Juventus and Maccabi competing for Europa League. Now, Maccabi play Benfica next. Juventus play PSG. These two sides obviously played twice. Maccabi beat Juventus 2-0 in Israel. Juventus beat Maccabi 3-1 in Turin. Juventus would go through if they finish level and points, even though they've won one each. The aggregate score is the same. Juventus having scored more goals. No, Juventus having... I don't know why they'd go through. I actually don't know why they'd go through. But Juventus are currently sitting above them. Maybe, it's, maybe because everything is equal, it comes down to goal difference. It's too common this year. It should just be goal difference and nothing else, not head-to-heads. The head-to-head stuff is nonsense. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. One of them's going to the Europa League. Juventus would be interesting in the Europa League, especially considering, as things stand, we've got Juventus, Sevilla, one of Leipzig or Shakhtar, one of Milan and Salzburg. It could still be any two of... Uh, Marseille, Sporting, Eintracht and Tottenham. Barca are going to be in the Europa League. Atletico Madrid may be in the Europa League. Ajax probably going to be in the Europa League. And when you consider there's already some really good teams in the Europa League, it just could be a great competition. So Juve going in could be fun. But Juve finishing bottom would be really funny. Like, really funny. They have gone from being arguably the best-run club in the world in 2017 to an absolute train wreck. It's a magnificent thing. You can chart it all from when Beppe Maratta left and went to Inter Milan and Paratici came in and just went absolutely buck wild and started signing garbage on free transfers like Aaron Ramsey and spending $100 million on a 34-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo at the time, 33-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo at the time. Baffling. Um, <clears throat> Benfica look great, though. They really do. 
they look really, really good. And you can see why they're doing so well domestically. That midfield is exceptional. That young centre-back is incredible. Even even when partnered with Nicholas Otamendi. Um, so yeah, there's your games from last night. Tonight we've got eight games. Two early games. Inter versus Victoria Plitton. Inter need only get one point. And it's over for Barcelona. It's over for Barcelona. Ideally, they'll win. Um, no, I say that. Barca could beat Bayern. They could beat Bayern. They won't beat Bayern. Inter just need to win. Inter win, Barca are into the Europa League. Um, Barca host Bayern. Bayern are without a couple of players. That could be an interesting game. If both teams are full strength, I think Bayern would beat them. But Barca have been good this season in the league. Like Their league form is really impressive. Defensively, they've got the best defensive record in any of the top six leagues, which is fairly staggering when you consider they've had a bit of a revolving door at left-back and they've had injury issues at centre-back. And they've been playing like Eric Garcia, who's just not very good. The other early game is Club Bruges versus Porto. Bruges are top and through. Uh, Porto second in that group right now. That's a very finely balanced group because Atletico Madrid could still get through. Bayer Leverkusen could still get through. Um, Bruges are safe. They'll be fine. They don't care. But I think they'll still want to keep up this really impressive record. 1-4, sorry, played 4, 1-3, drawn 1, having conceded a goal, scored 7. They are the only team not to concede a goal through four games. Uh, Manchester City have only conceded 1 in 5 games, but they conceded 1 in their first 4. Um, Simon Mignolet, who knew? The other game in that group then, obviously, is Atleti at home to Bayer Leverkusen. Leverkusen haven't had a great start under Alonso. They did win their first game, but Schalke are awful. And they've been thumped a couple of times. So, not ideal. Not ideal for Leverkusen coming into this one. Um, Porto thumped them and Eintracht Frankfurt thumped them. And Eintracht did that the week after losing to Bochum, who'd finished, who, who are bottom. Uh, they got a 2-2 draw at Wolfsburg at the weekend, but looked really, really fragile. Um, I'm expecting Atleti to win that. Now, if Atleti win and Porto win, that sets things up really nicely on the final day where those two sides will meet in Porto. I really do want Atleti, in, as much as I love Simeone, and I really like Atleti, I'd like them in the Europa League because they could win it. Mostly because they could win it. Uh, they won't win the Champions League. They could win that. It probably is even a stretch this season for them because they've not looked anywhere close to what we expect them to be. Uh, other games tonight then. Eintracht Frankfurt against Mar Marseille. Eintracht have had a really poor season on both domestic and European fronts and sit bottom. Marseille had started really well in, in the French League, but they've lost the last three games in a row. Um, but they did turn things around Champions League-wise with two wins over Sporting. Sporting played Tottenham. 
that's in Tottenham, that should be it should be a good game, but I don't really see any any outcome other than the Spurs win. And Spurs need the win, to be fair, because they do run the risk of finding themselves in the Europa League if results go against them. So if Marseille beat Eintracht and Sporting were to beat them, then all of a sudden Spurs are in real trouble. Um, moving on. Last group then, Napoli, probably the most informed team in Europe, maybe the best team in Europe this season in terms of how they've played domestically and in Europe. It's them or Real, and I would say them. Simeon back now as well. They just look phenomenally good. Kavicha and Anna Simeon is an absolute terif- terrifying prospect in full flow. I would expect them to beat Rangers heavily tonight. They might not play all their, their first-choice players, but I expect them to beat Rangers heavily. And then Ajax versus Liverpool. Liverpool just need a draw. That's it. Just get a draw and you're through. You don't need to do anything else. Get a draw and you're through. Um, as things stand, there are only two teams with 100% records so far. Those are Bayern. Theirs is at risk tonight against Barca. And then Napoli. And theirs, I don't believe, to be in any risk because Rangers are not good at all. And it's a home game for Napoli. So Napoli might be the first team, or the only team to go 5-0 five, five and oh in the first five games. Um, right, let's, I'm rambling now. Let's take a break. When I come back, I want to talk about the rise of the number nine. Because it seemed like for a number of years, the number nine went away, but now it's back and it's brilliant. So we'll see you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So, the number nine. So, if we think back over the last 10 years, and you look at the great number nines, and I spoke about this a few months ago, how there'd been this generation of number nines that had all sort of aged out together. So, you had Cavani, Suarez, Higuain. Zlatan, a little bit older, but same type of generation. Lewandowski, a little bit younger, but same generation. And Karim Benzema, recently crowned Ballon d'Or winner. Again, like Lewandowski, I think he's a little bit older than Lewandowski, a little bit younger than Suarez, but he's in that generation. See, so at all of these brilliant number nines, and none seem to come through behind them bar one who even approached their level. Now, the one who got to their level is obviously Harry Kane. Harry Kane is now 29. He'll be 30 next summer. And he was the only one that seemed to come along for quite a while who you would call a great number nine. But now, 
you look around, especially in the Premier League, and you're seeing the re-emergence of these incredible number nines. So the obvious one is Erling Haaland. Manchester City's Viking. He is a monster. 22 years of age. The goal-scoring record is ridiculous. 177 and 216 senior games. Uh, that record would be a lot better if not for a season with Bryn in Norway where he's played 16 games, didn't score. If you look at him at Molde in his last season, 16 and 30, then you look at his foot, his only full season, or it wasn't even full, it was a half season with Salzburg, 22 and 20, sorry, 28 and 22. Goes to Dortmund, scores 86 goals in 89 games. And at City, he's got 22 and 16. So Salzburg, 29 goals in 27 games overall. Dortmund, 86 in 89. So you're talking about from roughly Christmas time 2018 or January 2019 through to the end of last season. He was <clears throat> one shy of a goal a game. And now in the Premier League, supposedly the most difficult league in the world and the Champions League, he is 22 and 16. So we're approaching now four years since he joined Salzburg and he is averaging over a goal a game in that time, 11 and 17 in the Premier League. But it's not just him. He wasn't the only big number nine arrival into the Premier League this past season. Newcastle spent big money to bring in Alexander Isak, who is an outstanding player, really well-rounded, superb skill set, can do a little bit of everything, doesn't have a glaring weakness, other than maybe the ability to stay fit. But he put together three very good seasons with Real Sociedad. Now, he's not the goal scorer that Haaland is, but very few are. He did show what Willem Tway can score regularly. But his all-round game is what really excites me. The hold-up play, the ability to carry the ball. He's an outstanding dribbler for a guy who's 6'4". Great pace, calm in front of goal. Really, really impressive player. And at 23, huge future ahead. Chelsea have Armando Broglie, who's come through their academy. Now, we need to see a lot more of him, but certainly the raw materials are there for him to be a really impressive number nine on the world stage for a long time. Now, the next guy's been around a long time. I think he's 26 or 27 now, but it's only this season in terms of top-flight football where he's really shown what he's fully, he's actually 28, what he's fully capable of, and that is Alexander Mitrovic. So we'd seen him go and destroy the championship twice. But beginning this season, we had questions over, can he do it in the Premier League? And the answer is a resounding yes. But this guy was doing it in the Serbian Superliga 10 years ago. He was exceptionally good for Anderlecht, 
for the two years he was there as well. He joined Newcastle, had a decent first season, then fell off, and there was some disciplinary issues, and maybe he wasn't as committed to his career as he should have been. But since going to Fulham, he has been tremendous. Far the last time he was in the Premier League. You look at even the first time he was in the Premier League with them, because he joined them in the Championship, scored 12-17 and 17 in the second half of the season, came up, gets 11-37 and 37 in a team that you'll remember was an absolute mess, had three or four different managers through the season. Scotty Tuchel's got the job right at the end of the year. I think they'd gotten Ranieri in and he'd walked away or something like that. Can't really remember. And um, I'm almost certain that was the case. But yeah, he got 11 goals in 37 games. It's not a great return, but it's not a bad return either. Goes to championship, just wipes the floor with everybody. Comes up, scores 3-27. and Fulham fans can try and paint that however they want and rewrite history around it. He was poor that year. Last season, 43 goals in 44 games in championship is otherworldly. This season, he's got 9-11 and 11 already. And he is proving himself to be an absolute nightmare for anybody to try and deal with. And his game should hold up well. Like, he's obviously great in the air and he's great with his back to goal, but like, he's good in tight spaces. He uses his power and he just sort of bulldozes his way past people, but he shifts the ball nicely so that it's in his own feet and they don't have a chance to nick it off him. Liverpool spent big money to bring in Darwin Nunes. This guy just brings chaos whenever he sets foot on the pitch. He's big, he's fast, he's strong, he's good in the air, can use both feet. He's raw, he's got a lot to work on, but the materials are absolutely there. And considering his age, I think it's fair to say that he is going to score a lot of goals and get an awful lot better than he is now. And at 23, he's already very good. Last season with Benfica, he scores 34 and 41, including six and 10 in the Champions League, including both games against Liverpool. 26 and 28 in the Premier League for Benfica. It was very, very impressive stuff. This season, he's got five and 12 games, but he's not playing full games. He's had a lot of sub-appearances. When he's played 30 minutes or more, that's only happened five times. He scored in three of them. So the more he's on the pitch, the more he's going to score. He is an absolute chance machine. He's averaging like six or seven shots on goal a game. He is going to score goals by the bucket load. West Ham bringing in Gianluca Schemacca. And they're all, the fans are already in love. Again, another 23-year-old, turns 24 on New Year's Day. 6'5", great in the air, but it's not his aerial ability that's the impressive thing. It's what he can do with the ball at his feet. He can beat players, has that really upright nature that it doesn't look like he should just be able to get like, knock it past people and move, but he can. He's deceptively quick. His right foot is an absolute weapon of mass destruction. When the ball leaves his foot... It pings off his foot. He generates incredible power with very little backlift. What I love about him is his ability to improvise. I highlighted it after the Southampton game. That flying knee volley, it was ridiculous. 
absolutely ridiculous. Most strikers try and take that ball on the chest. He jumped and kneaded with venom at the goal and almost scored. His ability to bring others into the game is second to none. Of the strikers I've mentioned so far, this newer generation, he might be the best at linking play. He might not score as many goals as the others, but his all-round play puts him firmly in that mix. He was really impressive for Sassuolo last season, 16 goals in 36 games in Serie A. The season before in a bad Genoa team, he scored 8-26 and in the league, 12-29 and in all competitions. And let me repeat, that was a bad Genoa team. A really bad Genoa team. And he was carrying them. Pretty much single-handedly kept them in the division. Brentford, Ivan Tony. A little bit older again, 26. But he has gone the long route to where he is now. Came through at Northampton. He's a Northampton boy. Newcastle picked him up at 19. Sent him on loan after loan after loan. Two to Barnsley. One to Shrewsbury. One to Scunthorpe. One to Wigan. One to Scunthorpe. Second to Scunthorpe, I should say. And um, only really in that second loan at Scunthorpe did we really start to see what he was capable of. But he was only 22 at the time. So Peterborough took a gamble. And they paid a big, big fee for them. £650,000. That was big money for Peterborough in League One. Comes in 23 and 55. 16 and 44 in the league. The next season, he levels up. 24 and 32 in the league. 26 and 39 in all competitions. Absolutely outstanding. And then Brentford step in and they pay five million and a whole host of add-ons. And he just tears up the championship. In his first season playing in the championship, he just tears it up and looks spectacular. 33 goals in 52 games, 31 and 45 in the league. Outstanding. Last season, 12 and 33 in the league. But what was most impressive to me was how many chances he created for others. He easily should have ended with double figures assists, but his teammates let him down time and again. 14 and 37 in all competitions. This season, he's on fire. He's got 8 and 13 in all competitions, 8 and 12 in the league. His link play, his ability in the air, he is phenomenally good in the air. He's not Mitrovic because he doesn't have that kind of overwhelming strength, but his spring is second to none. He just gets up and above centre-backs. Joel Matip is one of the best centre-backs in Europe when it comes to aerial duels. Last season, Ivan Tony ate him alive. Absolutely ate him alive. Just tortured him. Bullied him. Phenomenal. And week after week, I watch Ivan Tony, and I'm impressed. Now, I don't know if a top club will go in for Ivan Tony considering his age, because I think those clubs, when they're looking to spend big money, will look younger. But if I'm Aston Villa, I'm throwing all the money at him. Because I think him and Ollie Watkins is the type of pairing that's perfect for Unai Emery. 
Bournemouth, he's not the same level, and I don't think he's going to be the same level, but Dominic Solanke does impress. And that's basically it. Then for our number nines in the Premier League. But it's not just about the Premier League. You know, we take a gander around Europe and you're seeing others who stand out and look very, very impressive. The one that really jumps out to me is Dusan Vlahovic of Juventus. Um, I think he is an exceptionally gifted player. 22 years of age, be 23 in January. Came through the academy at um, Partizan, was stolen by Fiorentina while still in that academy, um, though he had played some senior games. Goes to Fiorentina and has a slow start, it must be said. Has a slow start. Doesn't do a whole lot for his first 18 months there. His first season team is 19-20. He gets eight goals in 34 games in all competitions. And then he really starts to roll the next year. He gets 21-40 in 2021. And then last season, he was on fire. 20-24. in Juventus come in in January, pay an enormous figure. Uh, 70 million euro plus 10 million in, in bonuses. He goes there, he gets nine in 21 in all comps, so finishes with 29 and 45. This season, he's got seven in 15, and this is in a very dysfunctional Juventus team, missing its best player in Federico Chiesa. When he gets Chiesa back, I think you're going to see those numbers fly up. I think he is tremendous. I love that left footed game. I love how easy he makes it look. And I'm I'm really excited for Serbia in the World Cup. Um, there is a possibility that we get the Vlahovic-Mitrovic partnership, which nobody wants to face. Uh, with Luka Jovic, kind of who's somewhat rekindling his career uh, at Fiorentina now as the Vlahovic replacement. Um, coming off the bench. But those two up front, and potentially, potentially Sergei Milinkovic-Savage from midfield. All they need to do is just pump balls into the box. No one's going to want to play them. They've got Dusan Tadic there who'll buzz around. They're going to have some of the best crossing in the world from Philippe Kostic. They've got big old boys at centre-back, so set pieces are going to be a nightmare. I think Serbia... I won't say they're a dark horse to win it. Of course not. But they're kind of one of the teams that have... Do you know what? They are a dark horse to win it. Why Why not? They are. They're a dark horse to win it. Because they're going to be really hard to stop. Now, I don't know how good they're going to be defensively. Because individually, the pieces aren't great. The goalkeepers are okay, but that's about it. But midfield and attack... They're going to be really, really good. And I very, very much like the fact that they're managed by Dragan Stojkovic, who's one of the best players of all time that nobody remembers. Pixie was incredible. Absolutely incredible player for Red Star, for Marseille. Very unfortunate with injuries. When he went to Marseille, it just didn't work. So he took his talents and bounced to uh, to Grandpa's eight in Japan and played there for seven years or however long it was. Um, 
he was he was phenomenally good. Phenomenally good. If anyone remembers the 1990 World Cup, that Yugoslavia team was so talented. And had it not been for the Balkan Wars and the, the breakup of Yugoslavia, I am convinced that team would have won a major tournament. This Serbia team aren't nearly as talented, but they're really good fundamentally. They play to their strengths. They don't try and do things they're not capable of doing. And when you can put Mitrovic and Vlahovic and Milinkovic Savage arriving from midfield in the box, three of the best headers of the ball anywhere in the world, and then you've got the arguably the best left-footed crosser of the ball, probably the best left-footed crosser of the ball in world football and Philippe Kostic supplying for them, you're going to get a lot of chances. So I'm, I'm looking forward to Serbia, but yeah, Vlahovic was the main point of, of that part. Um, He's just really, really impressive. And of course, the big one in Syria is Victor Osman who is just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous footballer. Nobody should be that fast, that athletic, that strong, while looking quite slender. He doesn't look like a big guy, but he's ferociously strong. He plays with wonderful aggression, scores spectacular goals, doesn't score maybe to the level that you'd expect, but he does everything brilliantly. He won't ever score as many goals as a Haaland, but I think as an overall player, he's a better player than Haaland. Haaland's a better goal scorer, but a Simeon has better hold of play, better link play, works a lot harder, runs the channels a lot better. His first touch is great. He's great in the air. And he's just spectacular. And if Napoli can keep him and Kavicha together for the long, to- long term and figure out how to get Raspadori in there, they're going to be scary good for many, many years. Um, then, of course, I-, I wanted to mention Tammy Abraham, who I don't think is elite level. I think like, kind of like Ivan Tony, maybe, and Mitrovic, a level below. And he's also obviously a little bit older than some of the others, but what age is the Simeon actually? 23 as well. This group of 23-year-olds, 22, 23-year-olds, phenomenal. Ivan, um, Ivan, Tommy Abraham is 25. And again, he's just one that has that really well-rounded game. Just a really well-rounded game where he can do pretty much everything at a good level. Not stand out in any one thing but you know he's had some trials and tribulations in his career as well we saw him at Bristol City in the championship torched the championship 23 goals in 41 games goes to Swansea on loan the next season and struggles 5 and 31 in the Premier League the next season he goes on loan to Aston Villa in the championship and scores 25 and 37. Villa should have bought him instead of Danny Ings because he was available and he went for 34 million. 
Now, I think they paid 22 for Ings, so I know it's 12 million more, but Tammy would have made so much more sense. He'd been there, he enjoyed his time, loved his time there, has spoken about it multiple times since, loved playing at Villa Park, and Tammy and Watkins would have made a really good pairing. Um, Finally got his chance. The one good thing Frank Lampard did at Chelsea was give young players a chance. Uh, he gets 18 and 47 in his first full season for Chelsea. Um, 15 and 34 in the league is a decent return. The next season, he's not quite as prolific, but a big part of it is when Tuchel came in, he just wasn't willing to use him. And obviously he didn't even put him in the squad for the FA Cup final, which was really bad form because he'd done fairly well. I think he, he was their top scorer in the run to that final with four goals in three games. Doesn't put him in the in the squad for the final, leaves him out. And that was it. Tommy was leaving at that point. So it goes to Roma. Last season, 27 in 53, 17 and 37 in his in league games. That's a really good return. For your first season in Serie A, it's a really good return. This season he's been poor. It must be said, he's been poor. Only two and fourteen in all competitions. Both of them came in his eleven league games. But Tammy Abraham is a very good player. And he is somebody that I do think has another level to go. I don't ever think he's going to be one of the elite, but he is really good. When we look at La Liga, you've obviously got the top two have the two remain remaining members of that older crew. They have Benzema and Lewandowski, and both of them are still to this day, brilliant. Um, Sevilla have N. Naziri, who, when fit and firing, I would put in the same bracket as Tony, Tammy, and Mitrovic. Not elite level, but certainly very good and could improve a lot of teams and be a really good player for, you know, a mid-table Premier League team. But I just think when you look around, and I think Goncalo Ramos at at um, Benfica is another one to keep an eye on. There's just this great group of number nines now on the scene. Some of them a little bit older. Mitrovic, like I said, Tony, Tammy, and Naziri. But this group of kind of 22, 23-year-olds, Haaland, Isak, Nunes, Skimaka, Vlahovic, Osimian. That is phenomenally good. That core, that group of six, that could be the next and potentially better Benzema, Lewandowski, Suarez, Cavani, Higuain, Zlatan. And I may have missed somebody. I'm not counting Cristiano because he wasn't a nine for most of his career. So that's why I've left him off if you're wondering. But that that group of six strikers, that they were all world-class at different points in their career. And this group, I, I think they can all be world-class as well. Not all at the same time. They'll have patches. Some of them will, like Haaland, I could see him being incredible to like 27, 28, and then starting to decline early because of the frame. Whereas others like, say, Skimaka, I could see his game really going up and up and up as he hits 27, 28, 29, 
and all of the clever things about his game become more refined and he starts to score even more goals because he's just got that extra little bit of game intelligence. But it's just a lot of fun to picture what the future might be with these strikers and more of them to come as well. Obviously, there's going to be others that arrive. I've left off people like Gabriel Jesus, who's kind of a nine and a half. You know, like Jesus is obviously playing well as a number nine for Arsenal this season. There's no doubt about that, but he's not the type of number nine I'm looking at here. I'm looking at guys that can play back to goal, get it, give it, turn in the box on the end of something, goal. That's what I'm looking at. Those old school number nines, those traditional number nines. And I'm really excited to see the return of the great number nine because for too long, Harry Kane was carrying quite a burden. I was like, well, there was this group and we've got Kane and you look around Europe and you think we don't have much else. But, you know, Mitrovic and Tony um, and Tammy, they've taken a, a different paths to the top. So it's taken them longer to get the recognition. But this other group is just scary good. Scary good. We'll wrap with the gossip. Paris Saint-Germain want to extend Lionel Messi's deal by an additional 12 months. Bayern Munich are considering a move for Ilkay Gundogan. In the summer, he's out of contract, so would make sense. Barcelona are in talks, sign Ruben Evans. I am convinced these people just regurgitate the same stuff. Chelsea could make a bid for Bruno Gomerish from Newcastle, but the Magpies are hoping to fight off interest by offering him a new club record contract. So here's the thing. It also says Juventus are keen in signing him. Newcastle got a free run at him when they signed him, and they signed him for £34 million. He was undoubtedly a Champions League level player. And as he's shown since joining Newcastle, he would start for any team in the Premier League. Maybe City, you could argue Gundogan, but Gamerish is, is incredible. So every other team he starts for. It's not even a debate. He starts for every other team in the league. Uh, he starts for Barcelona and all other teams in La Liga. I think he starts for Real as well. He starts for I think he starts for everybody in Europe, if I'm being honest. I have to yeah, he does. He he does. He starts for every team in Europe. He's He's ridiculously good. So when Newcastle got him, it's obviously quite a coup. But it seemed strange for him to make that move. Newcastle are a couple of years away from being a Champions League team. And he's, I think, 25 now. I think he was 24 when they signed him. Bruno Gnerf. Oh, he's still 24. He'll be... Yeah, they signed him at 24. He'll be 25 in November. It just seemed odd that he would sort of take three, maybe four years in the middle of his 20s and not want to play Champions League. And basically, since he signed, we've obviously been doing... The, well, how did Newcastle get a free run at him? We've obviously been looking at that and thinking, well, like Arsenal needed a midfielder. Liverpool are begging for midfielders. Chelsea needed a midfielder. United needed a midfielder. He'd improved Spurs immensely. Why did nobody else go for him? So that remains unknown. Why no one else went for him. But it also is a bit odd that he chose to go to Newcastle. He could have stayed at Lyon until the summer. 
<clears throat> and he would have gotten uh, a bigger move, but he didn't. So from the minute he signed, there was all this talk of, oh, well, like Liverpool wanted him, but Newcastle stole a march and he, someone Liverpool could revisit in time. Uh, Real Madrid have real interest in him and they'd like to sign him and all this type of stuff. And that interest and rumours of that interest have seemed to ramp up in recent weeks. And there is now some suggestion that he has a buyout clause in his contract, which is why Newcastle are so hurried to give him a new deal before a transfer window opens. Now, Eddie Howe said at some point last season, excuse me, that there was no release, no escape clause, is how Howe said it. He said it about him and about Trippier. No escape clause. What that meant to me was there was no relegation release clause. Because at the time, and it must have been early after he signed, because they were still in in the mire for relegation. And obviously they went in that really good run after they signed him. So... I do wonder, is there a release clause in his contract? Is there a buyout in his contract? If they signed him for 34, would that fee be around 50, 55, maybe even 60? If it is, top teams will have no issue paying that for him because he's worth that and more. He is so good. So, so good. So I'll be curious to see if he does sign an extension with Newcastle. And if he does, does it just raise the release clause? Or does he consent to having it removed? It, it may not exist. I may, I'm merely speculating based on how unusual it was for him and a player of his calibre to go to a team that are years away from the Champions League. Even now, another four at the minute, but Newcastle... Like, let's be honest. Newcastle are not as good as City. They're not as good as Liverpool. I know they're ahead of Liverpool in the league. The league doesn't mean anything after 11 or 12 games. And they're marginally ahead. Five points, I think, at all, is in Liverpool of a game in hand. They're not as good as Chelsea. They're not as good as United. They're not as good as Arsenal. They're not as good as Spurs. Go man for man, player for player. They're not as good as those teams. They're not as good as West Ham man for man either. They're just not. Ariola's better than Pope. Trippier's probably better than Soufal, but that's not saying much. Neither of the left-backs are great, but I think I'd take Cresswell over Dan Byrne. Agard against Botman. It's Botman, but it's very close, and Zuma's far better than Shar. Declan Rice is better than Jolington. Gamerish is better than Suchek. But then it becomes very West Ham-heavy. Bowen is better than Almiron. Now, it's close, but it's it's Bowen. Skimaka is better than either of the Newcastle strikers. Paqueta is better than Joe Willock. You take St. Maximan as best over Max Cornet, but I think man for man, you'd probably take, what, six to five in favour of West Ham? And West Ham have better depth as well. Than Newcastle do. So 
they still have a long way to go. If you look at their team, Nick Pope, I think, could play Champions League level. Botman definitely could. Trippier could. Trippier's also aging. Uh, Gimerish could. I don't know about any of the midfielders. Don't know if Jolinton could play Champions League level. Uh, and up front, St. Maximin has a talent, maybe not the consistency. Isak can, can play Champions League. That's about it. So I think they've still got a long way to go before they're real Champions League contenders. Right now, they're playing very well in a league that's not very good at the minute. But we'll see after the World Cup if they can hold on to that. It wouldn't surprise me if we see him go if that buyout exists. Because if it exists, his agent will be telling other clubs it exists. And we'll we'll know soon enough if we start seeing a £60 million bid thrown in. Because you would look at him and say, well, to buy him, you're talking 85, 90 million because age, talent, versatility in midfield. He's he's the all-round package. But if teams start, if, if you hear of an offer of 60 going in, it's likely because they've been told there's a buy out there. Um, sporting Lisbon manager Ruben Amram says everyone at the club dreams of Cristiano returning to the club, however, they cannot afford his wages, which is a polite way of saying we don't want him. It, it's just what it is. It's a polite way of saying that. Cristiano came through at Sporting. Cristiano's the greatest player associated with Sporting, even though, even though for me, I would always say that when I think of Sporting, I think of Luis Figo. Largely because he was there a lot longer and did a lot more for sporting than Cristiano did. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so he can't come out and say, well, no, we don't want him. Toxic. We don't want him. Ronaldo's options of a move to the United States include Inter Miami, LA Galaxy, and LAFC. So basically, the big market clubs. You would assume that the New York clubs, New York FC and New York City FC, I should say, and the New York Red Bulls would both also have an interest, but he might not want to live in New York. Um, Arsenal are willing to offer Albert Sambi Laconga as part of a deal to sign Sergei Milinkovic-Savage. Why? why? Why would Lazio want him? Chelsea are keen to begin contract talks with Mateo Kovacic after the World Cup. His current deal is less than two years remaining. He is a must-keep for them. He is their best midfielder by a considerable margin. Uh, well, because Kante is so injury-prone and has clearly declined. Meanwhile, Arsenal will back Mikel Arteta with £50 million in the transfer window in order to help their title bid. Right. Title bid, is it? Uh, people just get so carried away. Um, England midfielder Jude Bellingham could yet decide to stay at Borussia Dortmund next summer. No, he won't. Let's not be ridiculous. He is leaving. Liverpool could use Naby Keita to secure a deal for Sandro Tonali. No, they wouldn't. I know they can't because he's out of contract in the summer and isn't going to help them in any way. Jonathan David said he would love to play for a massive club. Canada Ford has been linked to Chelsea, Arsenal and Manchester United. He'd be good fit at United. Chelsea want Brighton's head of recruitment, Paul Winstanley, after bringing in technical directors 
Lawrence Stewart from Monaco and Christopher Vivelle from RB Leipzig, as well as ex Southampton co-director of recruitment, Joe Shields. Uh, putting together quite the think tank. This is going to end messily, though. It, it just is. There's too many. You're going to put too many brains together. And there's going to be no real structure. All these people are used to having people answer to them. So, no. Manchester United are happy with the work being done by John Murtaugh. That's why United are going nowhere. That's why United will go nowhere. Arsenal have opened contract talks with Edu over a new deal amid growing interest from European clubs. His agent leaked this to Spufrizio. Um Leicester and Southampton are interested in 22-year-old Morocco forward Zakaria Abuklau. Abuklau? I think Abuklau. Abuklau. I could be. I, who knows? Who knows? Uh, from Toulouse. Fair play. Um, James Madison and Moussa Diaby are considered realistic targets for Newcastle in January. Madison, I can see. Diaby does make sense, but I mean, 70 million from Pusti Abbey would be ludicrous. Michael Carrick says he will use his relationship with Manchester United to bring in players on loan. Um, yeah, probably not a bad idea, to be fair. Probably not a bad idea. Right, we will leave it there then. And uh, that is all from me today. Thank you, as always, for listening to my inane ramblings. Sorry, I don't sound great today. I'm not feeling. 100%, but uh, be back tomorrow. See you then. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.